If you're uh, new to Hebron and you haven't been here for the last nine weeks, you know that we've been looking at the wondrous cross. And we're seeing again that the cross is not only the central place of the beginning of our salvation, but it is the central point at which Christ calls us every day as we live the Christian life. It's not the starting line. It is not simply the starting line, but it's also the finish line. All that Christ did for us, he did on the cross. And so this morning, we turn to the penultimate message in our series, talking about uh, what Jesus says about the finality of the cross. A couple of texts, first from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer as at hand. John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And then in Galatians chapter 6, at the end of that great letter, Paul says this, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. In the city of Rome, Italy, there, are, there is a church by the name of St. John of Lateran. And there in that church is a staircase made of marble. It is said to have been brought from the Pilate's Hall in Jerusalem. It's said to be the staircase that Jesus walked up when he was tried before Pilate. Having been scourged, it's said that while he walked, drops of blood fell from his body. It said, even today, you can see the blood stains on those steps. 
Years ago, I stood at the base of those steps in that church, and I watched as people crawled up those marble stairs, taking most of them several hours to go from the bottom to the top, 28 steps. And on every step, they seemed to do the same thing. They would stop, their head would fall to the steps, they would weep, they would kiss those marble steps, and then they'd proceed to the next one. And as I watched, I saw there were some young people doing it with great agility. There were other old people who were rigid of body and they were having a difficult time, but they too were on their knees crawling up those steps. And as I watched this, my mind went back centuries to the time another man began to traverse those steps. He was there to pray, not for himself, but for his uncle who had just died. He was asking the Lord to lessen the time that his uncle would have to spend in purgatory as a result of his own contrition and repentance on these steps. When he got to the middle step, after nearly two hours, he said he bowed his head as he did on every other step. He began to weep. And then all at once, he said, as I looked at those bloodstains, I thought of the words of the prophet. Write it down. Record it on tablets. The just shall live by faith. And instantly that man, Martin Luther, got up from those steps, ran down, left Rome, went all the way back to Germany, and that was the beginning of the Reformation. Now let me ask you something. What happened to him? What happened to Martin Luther as he was traversing those steps and got to the middle and he looked at the bloodstains on the marble and he remembered the words of the prophet? I'll tell you what happened. The blood of Christ, the blood of God, met the word of God and transformation occurred. A few weeks ago, Tim was preaching about the thief on the cross. Remember what he says, as the other thief derides Jesus, this thief who had derided Jesus instantly changes and he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what caused that man to say that? What caused him to say to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom? The same thing. The blood of Christ met the word of God and change occurred. You say, where was the word of God in this situation? It was hanging right above the head of Jesus. For Matthew tells us, they wrote a plaque and put it above the head of Jesus and the plaque said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. 
And so the word of God met the blood of God. And instantly there was a change. Now listen to what Paul says about the cross. He says in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's his point? You've abandoned the cross. And then in two chapters, he details the way in which they've abandoned the cross. And it's simply this. They're depending on themselves and their own goodness rather than on the work of Christ. And then in chapter 6, he says, in conclusion, writing with his own hand, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, for Paul, the cross was not simply a starting point. The cross to Paul was not simply a ticket to eternal life. To Paul, the cross was a daily necessity. It wasn't a passing symbol. It was a stake in the ground. What Jesus did on the cross had relevance. Not just to the beginning of Paul's faith on the road to Damascus. But every single day he returned to it. Years ago, years ago, I was required to go before a panel of church men and women. It was their job to determine my suitability for this pulpit. And after two hours of examination, I remember a woman stood up and she pointed her finger at me across the table and she said, Sir, you are not reformed. She meant reformed in my theology. Now, I can never forget that. I drove 60 miles home, and immediately I called a friend of mine. And I said, I told him what happened, and I said to him, is she nuts? I mean, of all of the things she'd accused me of, how in the world could she accuse me of not being reformed in my theology? Spurgeon it was who said that reformed theology is simply a synonym for biblical theology. How could she say I'm not reformed? And he said, Doug, you need to listen to this. I went to the same seminary she went to. When she heard you speak of the gospel, she believed that you were reformational, not reformed. I said, what? He said, she thinks you're, you're locked in the 16th century? To her and to them, being reformed means being always willing to change your standard, always willing to modify the truth. And instantly I thought, thank the Lord that she accused me of that. Because to be reformed means that there's a stake in the ground. 
And you're tethered to that stake. And while your propensity as a human being with an evil heart is to continue to drift away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, being reformed is, by God's grace, being able to return to that standard. That's the basic tendency of every one of us. It's to abandon the gospel. It's to move in the direction of our own self-righteousness. That's exactly what the temptation of Adam and Eve was in the garden. You can be your own standard. You can be like God. You can be the master of your own destiny. And we have a world filled with people who believe that. 20 years ago, the late Jack Miller of World Harvest Mission and Westminster Seminary wrote this. Human willpower will always fail. Self-dependence is guilt-inducing and exhausting. It compels us to seek relief in pleasure, to use the good things of God as a drug to escape from reality. Unfortunately, those seeking self-fulfillment will never find happiness. Instead, their inner life will shrivel and dry up and waste away. But let them look away from their self-interest and their self-preoccupation. Let them fix their affections on Christ and His cross. And all of the satisfaction that they long for, they will find. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says, I'll boast in only one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. By His cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. cross is a stake in the ground. The cross is the anchor of your soul. The cross is where you find answers to every one of your problems and every one of your concerns. The cross is the place where you will find Jesus to be your all and all. And that's exactly what he tells us in the sixth word from the cross. Ten years ago on two consecutive Sundays, I preached on this word, tetelestai, it is finished. And over those two messages, we looked at seven meanings of that word, tetelestai. Seven meanings. There may be more. But today, before we come to his table, I want to look again at two of those meanings of what Jesus says when he says, it is is finished. First, when Jesus says it is finished, he means that all of the requirements of the law have been satisfied. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, this is John 19, he said it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now think of what that means. From the time of Mount Sinai, God had said to his people, here's my law. And the Israelites knew that the law of God was a perfect representation of God's character. It was holy and so is he. To know God meant to know the law. And to gain access to God meant that you had to live in strict obedience to the law. All the stipulations... All the injunctions, all the requirements of the law had to be met. 
And yet from Mount Sinai on, every man, every woman, every person who sought to keep the law has failed. And yet Jesus begins his ministry by saying this. Think not that I've come to abolish the law. Indeed, I tell you, not one pen stroke, not one iota of the law will pass away until it's all accomplished. And so the question that we've had to ask ourselves for millennia, from Sinai all the way to Calvary, was this. Who is going to accomplish the law for me? In fact, that's the question all of us continue to ask ourselves. Who's going to accomplish the law for me? Will I do it? Will I keep the law? Remember what the law says. If you've sinned at one point of the law, if you've broken one little precept, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. So the question is, Jesus says, it won't pass away this law. God's standard is fixed. It will not pass away until it's all accomplished. The question is, who will accomplish it? Will you do it? Will I do it? That's what Luther attempted to do. You know, Martin Luther wore out his confessors. Men in the church were there listening to his confessions, and they wore themselves out. They said, I'm not coming back to that confessional. That guy's crazy. He sought to keep the law, every bit of it. That's exactly what Paul did. Remember what he says of himself in Philippians chapter 3? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. That's what every one of us attempts to do. Whether a person understands who God is or whether a person understands God's law, every person, our default position is to attempt to try to justify ourselves. That's what the Galatians were doing. That's what every human being seeks to do. That's what every Christian seeks to do so often. Think of you, yourself. When you sin, isn't there a basic tendency to walk away, hide a little bit, and then say, i got to do some good stuff to make up for it? You know the good news of the gospel? You can't keep the law, neither can I. There's only one who can keep it, and that's the one who kept it perfectly and his name is Jesus. Have you ever thought about why Jesus didn't simply come and die? Why didn't he come and die at one or two? Why did he have to live all those years? Why did he have to be obedient for all those years? There's only one reason. And that's to keep the law of God for you. Think about that. Every temptation, every issue in Jesus' life, he met it with obedience. And he did it for you. I have a friend in Florida whose oldest daughter was 17 years old. She was a senior in high school. She had been a straight-A student. And she chose to do what most seniors, after they had gotten all their requirements and they had a straight-A, most seniors at that point would coast. They'd be lazy. They'd take the easy courses. Not her. She took the toughest including one taught by a teacher who had the reputation for being the hardest grader in the whole school. After seven weeks in his class, she had failed every assignment. The teacher called her father 
and said, I need to ask you a question. Why is your daughter failing everything in my class? She's got a straight-A record. I've talked to other teachers. They say she is brilliant. Father says, because she's scared to death of you. She's scared of you. She knows how hard you are. And the man said, thanks. I got my answer. The next day, at the beginning of class, he said, I want you, Robin, to stay after the bell rings. She's terrified. Everybody leaves the class. He says, come to my desk, Robin. And he says, look at that book on my desk. What is that? He said, it's your grade book. He said, I want you to open that book and find your name. And so she opened it, and she went with her finger all the way down the class list until she saw her name, and he said, what's next to your name? In every one of those grading periods, and look at the final, what, what, what's in there? Is there any marking? And she said, yeah, there are A's. He said, Robin, those are A's that are in ink. I guarantee you that you have, have an A in this class. It's in ink. I can never erase it. You've got an A. And from that day on, you know what happened to my friend's daughter? She never did anything in that class except A work. Because the fear was gone. The teacher had done for her what she feared she couldn't do for herself. He had given her an A and said, you've got an A, it's fixed, it's guaranteed. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for every believer. All of the goodness my Father requires, all of the obedience my Father demands, all of the requirements that my Father exacts, I have accomplished for you, and that is why I say to you, it is finished. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. For Christ is the end of the law, and he is righteousness to everyone who believes. When Jesus says it is finished, it means the law is fulfilled. Every requirement Jesus has earned for you. And then second, notice when he says it is finished, he also means that Satan's power has been broken. Listen again to what Paul says to the Galatians. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now think of this. To the human eye, the cross is Satan's greatest victory. To the human eye, Good Friday is really bad Friday. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Christ has shared our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Did you know that according to the tradition of the Jews, whenever they were going to make olive oil, 
they would crush the, the olives three times. Gethsemane literally means olive press. But what does Jesus do? After they had finished the supper, he says to his disciples, let's go out. And they go to the Mount of Olives. He takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he takes his three, Peter, James, and John. And he says, come with me. And then he stops them and he says, you wait here. You watch and you pray. Then the Bible says he goes a distance. He falls on his knees. He falls on his face. And he says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. And then he comes back and they're sleeping. Three times Jesus goes to pray, comes back, and they're sleeping. Three times he goes to be pressed. And he's all alone. His disciples aren't there, they're sleeping. He's all alone in his temptation. He's all alone in his betrayal. He's all alone in his beatings. He's all alone in his scourging. He's all alone in being nailed to the cross. He's all alone except for Satan. In fact, Satan's greatest triumph is when Jesus, hanging on the cross, recognizes what his father has done, and that is to turn his back on his son. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father curses him to hell. The one who knew no sin became sin, and the father turns his back on his own son. Never in the history of all of the universe did God bifurcate himself, turn his back on himself. That's the point at which Satan must have been elated. And then the Bible says, comes the sixth word. Jesus says, it is finished. What's finished? First of all, my loneliness is finished. I'm no longer alone. The price has been paid. The Father is present. Jesus has done everything that his father has required. And on the cross, Jesus steps on the head of Satan. You say, but wait a minute, if that's true, why is Satan still roaming? If that's true, why is Satan giving me such a tough time? If that's true, why does Satan know me so well that he knows the place of my greatest weakness? And the answer is so that you might find in Jesus all the power you need. That you might appropriate the finished work of Christ. Remember what James says to the Christians in Jerusalem shortly after the resurrection? He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Martin Luther knew that. That's in his great hymn he wrote, one little word will fell him. Him who? Satan. One little word will fell him. Who is that word? word, The name is Jesus. And when Jesus says it is finished, he means it. He's not just talking to his father. 
He's not just talking to the angels. He's not talking to, simply to those who gather around. He's talking to his cosmic enemy, Lucifer. For his father knows it's finished. The angels know it's finished. Satan knows the work of Christ is finished. Satan knows he's finished. The only question that you remains is this. Do you know that it's finished? Every day of your life, do you know that everything that's necessary has been finished in Jesus? Years ago, in London, England, Carl Spurgeon preached a message, and he ended it with these words. It's actually... an admonition to his congregation, he said this, Children of God, you who by faith have received Christ as your all in all, tell it every day of your life it is finished. Go to those who are torturing themselves, thinking that obedience and sacrifice, that they might offer satisfaction to God, tell them it is finished. Go to those torturing themselves with fastings and self-denial, hoping to win the favor of God. Say to them, cease all of your pains, for it is finished. In all parts of the earth, there are those who think that by misery of the body and soul, they may atone for their sin. Rush to them, stave them in their madness, and say to them, what are, why are you doing this? It is finished. All of the pain that God asks, Christ has suffered. All of the ma- demands of the law that God has imposed, Jesus has endured. God neither asks nor accepts any other sacrifice than the one Jesus Christ offered once and for all on the cross. And you know something? When you know that, and when you continue to remind yourself of that, that changes everything. And that's exactly what this table is here for. To remember That Jesus not only said it is finished, he did everything that God ever requires of you. If you're a believer, if you trust Christ, your grade is in. It's an A. It's guaranteed. So come to this table today and celebrate.